the Daily Rios Digest, May 7th, 2022. Hey everybody, this is your host Peter. We start this week's digest, it's May 2nd, with a remembrance of Neil Adams, who passed on April 28th, in his own words. Dead Man was a, an opportunity to experiment with page, format, and layout. And um, I got a little radical on it. I have to admit, it was probably uh, totally rambunctious and, and out, of, out of order for me to do, but... Uh, I think probably the opportunity to, to stretch the medium a little bit, to uh, create compositions that were in a medium that was truly its own medium. It wasn't like film where you could only see one picture at a time. It wasn't like comic strips which I had done for a period of time and I was limited to a certain format. Here was a big rectangular page and I could do anywhere between three one drawing and ten drawings on that page and I could compose the page any way I wanted to. And I had certain attitudes about composing pages, which I had developed doing a syndicated strip. And I felt that I could lead the eye, that I could catch the reader, and I could make him read the way I wanted him to read, uh, that I could make him stop when I wanted him to stop by composing the pictures a certain way, that I could actually become one with the reader. If he was willing to go with me, if he was willing to read what I was doing, then I could, if I could just grab him by the throat, then he would follow and read in the way I wanted him to read. Dead Man was perhaps the, the most successful experiment in that area. You can read a Dead Man comic book and you almost unconsciously know when I want you to slow down or when I want you to speed up. You almost unconsciously know when I want you to slide through panels or when I want you to jump through panels. Just as a director will handle a different type of story a different way, our job as the artist and writer at, at times, is to tell the story the way it suits the story. After all, as Shakespeare would say, the play is the thing. It's not the artist. It's not the director. It's not the producer. It's the story. If you're not faithful to the story, if the play isn't the thing, then why are you doing it in the first place? Well, in comic books, as with film, as with everything else, we're all servants of the story. We can, we can warp the story, we can make it incorrect, or we can do it in a way that we believe is correct. If people agree with us, they'll like it. If they don't agree with us, they'll hate us. And in my case, I've been very lucky. People have liked the things that I've done. And I said, well, it's okay, but there's things about Dead Man that most people don't know because I didn't tell anybody. You didn't tell anybody? No. When I left Dead Man, I shut up because Dead, there was this long story I was going to tell and then the book got canceled, and I never got to tell the story, and I never told anybody that he has a history that nobody knows. He has an older brother and sister, nobody knows. He has a mother and father who have their own circus, and there's friction between uh, Boston Brand and his parents. And in fact, the friction is because of the older brother, and the older brother has a problem because his mother, their mother, was going to die. And the father saved her life by going to Ra's al Ghul and having him save her life. And Ra's al Ghul exerted a toll. The oldest son had to become 
part of the League of Assassins. Nobody knows any of this. The, the question was, what do you do? Well, I, of course, uh, because I come from advertising illustration, I could easily see what the solution was. The solution was make him realistic and do Batman the way he was originally created. I didn't do anything to Batman. I drew him better, but I basically went back to the Jerry Robinson, uh, Bob Kane Batman and brought him forward in time and just left out that middle area of satire that was no longer there. We had humor, but not satire. We didn't make fun of him. We made him a realistic character. So by doing that, I mean, they were actually the, uh, Batman appears in two books, uh, Batman and Detective Comics. They were on the verge of canceling Detective Comics and the sales on Batman weren't good. So it was a big problem at DC Comics. So I was doing Batman over in, in a, a comic book called Brave and Bold. Mm -hmm. And all the fan letters were saying, well, that's the only Batman at DC Comics is the one in Brave and Bold. So the editor of Batman said, come on, you're going to start doing Batman. So Denny O'Neill and I started to do Batman. And Denny O'Neill, it, 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 it's funny how things come together. Denny O'Neill was a reporter, and he used to work the night beat on his newspaper. And that kind of realistic, gritty kind of story is exactly what Denny was able to contribute to the Batman series. We didn't even do the clowns. We didn't do the Joker and Mad Hatter and those characters. We did uh, Orson Wellian type characters and, and people who could seem to be living uh, too long uh, mm -hmm. uh, lives because they were taking drugs and doing something illegal. So we turned Batman into a modern hero um, who fought crime at night, not in the daytime. A style is what you do wrong. That's what people do wrong. That's why you call it a style. If it were right, it would look like a photograph or like a Norman Rockwell painting. So the more you do it right, the less style you have. The more, the more you do it wrong, the more style you have. So style means you're doing it wrong. But because I come from the outside world, I could take a, a Green Arrow, for example, who was an imitation of Batman with his, his own little Robin, Speedy, and his Arrow car. It was too much of an imitation of Batman. So when I got it to do in Brave and the Bold, I basically said to my editor, look, I'm not going to do this imitation of Batman because it was never any good. It was, it was a stupid character, but it's a good name. And he shoots bows and arrows, so that's not Batman. Why don't I make him an imitation of Robin Hood, a modern-day Robin Hood? Then nobody would, can complain. So that's what I did. I made him, an, uh, in effect, a modern-day Robin Hood. You have to remember, uh, Green, Green Lantern went through processes that, if you're not a comic book fan, you don't, you don't quite realize. It was a, uh, an artist named Gil Kane, really brilliant artist. He, he did Green Lantern, and we read Green Lantern, the fans read Green Lantern because of Gil Kane. Didn't matter who wrote it, it was Gil Kane, because his, his dynamic way of doing things. So he, even before I came around, he was doing this wonderful stuff. He then retired to do a graphic novel as an independent artist, independent creator, and then the artist that came after him, no offense, please, but they weren't very good compared to Gil Kane. So the question was, did it just rest on Gil Kane? Yes, it did. So I asked if I could do it, and I would try to do Gil Kane. I would do Gil Kane doing Green, Lan Green Lantern. But then Julie Schwartz said, well, wait a second. Since you did Green Arrow and you changed Green Arrow over in Brave and Bold, why don't we put them together in one comic book, make them politically opposite, and have a conflict between them. So now Green Lantern was not just Green Lantern, but he was the conservative Green Lantern, the, the standard bearer of the Republican Party. And Green, and Green Arrow was the standard bearer of the Democratic Party or the liberal or whatever. 
And that conflict was great for the comic books because you could take these characters who are basically friends but thought differently and take them across America and have them actually see America through the eyes of these two superheroes who looked at everything differently. And that series of comic books is, is legendary. I came from advertising and illustration when I came into comic books. From my point of view, they were behind the times. They were crippled, a crippled industry. They were, it was, uh, most of them were uh, Neanderthals. They had very bad rules. They, they, they didn't return the original art. They didn't have royalties. They didn't do all the things that a real business does. And so I made it my business to make sure that that changed. So I transitioned to advertising, and then I allowed the industry to catch up to me. Timeline Tuesday. Timeline Tuesday for May. I'm going to go back to the uh, format of breaking up the Timeline Tuesday among several digests, starting with 10 years ago. So we're only going to cover 10 years ago, May of 2012. Here are some titles that are celebrating 10 years. Smallville Season 11, number one. This started out as a digital series in April of 2012, and then the Smallville Season 11 printed comic would premiere in May of 2012. This continues the adventures of the Smallville TV show one year after it had ended. It would run for 19 issues, five specials, a few miniseries, and then it would wrap up in 2015, the season 11 would wrap up uh, with the miniseries entitled Continuity. Um, comic book seasons, comic book versions of TV shows continued as the next season. That was kind of the thing, right? I mean, we got Buffy, Angel did it, Firefly. There was a Flash season zero. And I suppose we can count things like Batman 66, Wonder Woman 77, there was a Bionic Man, Batman 89, Superman 78. I mean, slightly different in the way they title it, but somewhat the same concept, I guess I guess you could say. And I'm sure there are more. So Smallville Season 11, the first issue was by Brian Q. Miller, who was the executive story editor for Smallville. Art by Perry Perez and the rest of the company, including colorist Randy Mayer. The cover was by Gary Frank. The story took place six months after the Smallville finale, and Clark is finally Superman. Now, there was a Smallville comic entitled The Smallville Magazine, but that was running more or less concurrent with the TV show, and while it did have a few new stories, it also had a lot of interviews and uh, I talk about those, I talk about that series uh, in my ongoing Daily Smallville episodes. You know, all of this reminder that I never finished it. <laughs> uh, yeah, rub it in. But um, yeah, I, I do, I, I, I have watched a few more episodes. I just haven't continued. I got stuck in season four. 
All right. Anyway, 10 years ago, May of 2012, about eight or nine months after the premiere of DC's New 52, we got a second wave. So after the eighth issue of six titles, Blackhawks, Hawk and Dove, Men of War, Mr. Terrific, OMAC, and Static Shock, DC decided they would cancel those six issues and started a second wave to expand the New 52 universe. And those titles are Batman Incorporated, Dial H for Hero, Earth 2, GI Combat, The Ravagers, and World's Finest. I can remember some of the early interviews, Jim Lee, Dan DiDio, when the New 52 broke, and they were talking about how they had 52 titles that they were going to release, but if, if some of them didn't hit, they were very aware that they were going to stop them and try something else, right? So I know at the time when they announced these second wave issues, some people were like, oh, you know, it's a big failure. And it's like, no, that was their goal right from the outset, that they were going to try this. And if something didn't work, instead of letting it run on and on and on, and it just continues to lose money, they were like, nope, we're going to stop it. We're going to start and do other things. And that's exactly what they did here. And you have to remember, as much as people want to rewrite history, um, regardless of the outcome of the New 52 as a whole, that first year was very successful, uh, you know, especially the first six months. But the first year of the New 52 was still an experiment, a large experiment that was for the most part successful and then eventually would, you know, become whatever it became. So these six titles, Batman Incorporated, would run for 13 issues and a special, and that continued the Grant Morrison story from the pre-New 52, artwork mostly by Chris Burnham. Dial H for Hero ran for 15 issues, 16 issues if you count the zero issue, by China Mevel and Mateus Santaluco. Earth 2 would run for 32 issues, and that was by James Robinson and Nicola Scott, the first issue. G.I. Combat ran for seven issues. The first issue was by J.T. Kroll, Ariel Olivetti and company. Ravagers would run for 12 issues. That first issue was by Howard Mackey and Ian Churchill. And World's Finest, number one, uh, World's Finest would run for 32 issues. The first issue by Paul Levitz, George Perez, and Scott Koblish and company. Let's go to Dark Horse. Ten years ago, May of 2012, we have Mind, Man Mind Management, or Mind MGMT, number one, by Matt Kint. And this would run for 35 issues with a bunch of follow-ups. So the story behind ma Mind Management, reporting on a commercial flight where everyone aboard lost their memories, a young journalist stumbles onto a much bigger story, the top-secret Mind Management Program. Her ensuing journey involves weaponized physics, or excuse me, weaponized psychics, hypnotic advertising, talking dolphins, and seemingly immortal pursuers as she attempts to find the flight's missing passenger, the man who was mind, management, mind management's greatest success and its most devastating failure. But in a world where people can rewrite reality itself, can she trust anything she sees? So this was Matt Kent's first monthly series, 
after creating a bunch of graphic novels, he felt that the that format was becoming easy, so he wanted to do something a little different. He wanted to do a monthly series, partly out of nostalgia. He is a creator, just like Jeff Lemire, that grew up on superhero comics and the odd superhero comics. So they love that format, and they love that, you know, that, that genre. Um, but he also wanted to do it because he wanted to have a dialogue between readers and himself while the publication was going on instead of graphic novels where that's mostly done on your own. Apparently, uh, there is a new imprint coming from Dark Horse by Matt Kent called Flux House, and this is going to debut Mind Management Bootleg, a four-issue limited series written by Matt Kent, but this time the art uh, will be not by Matt Kent. It'll have Art by Farrell Dalrymple, Jill Thompson, David Rubin, Matt Lesniewski. This story builds directly onto the conclusion of the original series and features the return of the mind management. I mean, 10 years ago, not that long ago, I can remember when this was announced, everybody was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. How is this going to play out with a creator that was mostly doing graphic novels? And, you know, Matt Kent, Jeff Lemire, they have very interesting parallel creative journeys. And both of them uh, would would kind of run on the same tracks. And yet they're so very different in, in some of their story and some of their art, obviously. Uh, but yeah, I can remember at the time this being a big thing. Over at Marvel, Astonishing X-Men number 50 in a story by Marjorie Liu, Mike Perkins and company. Uh, the story itself, Karma of the Old New Mutants, has apparently taken over the X-Men. And during this struggle, North Star um, is coming to terms with his boyfriend Kyle to the point that he proposes. And the very next issue, issue 51, next month, is uh, the uh, wedding. The wedding of North Star. I think, if I'm getting my comics history right, that um, that wedding between North Star and Kyle is at least Marvel's first gay wedding, if not comics, or at least the big two, uh, their, you know, portrayal of a, of a gay wedding. I'm not sure which one it is, if it's, you know, comics history, Marvel history, or just the big two history. Uh, also, uh, for Marvel, uh, a movie, a little movie called The Avengers, premiered May 4th, 2012, and finally, ten, 10 years ago, May of 2012, Teen Boat. Teen Boat, the hardcover, Dave Roman, John Green. Yes, it's the story of a teenager with the power to turn into a yacht. And it chronicles the trials and tribulations of being a teen and a boat, such as trying to fit in with the cool kids, struggling with acne, or in his case, barnacles, being hijacked by pirates, crashing into icebergs, and going to detention. Uh, it is the only comic that features the angst of being a teen and the thrill of being a boat. <laughs> it's just fun, silly, again, another property that I was, when I was going through my own personal list of comics for that particular month of May of 2012, I was like, oh yes, Teen Boat, I remember that. You know, think of think of Teen Turbo, right? The cartoon where the kid could turn into a car. Or just a silly comic like Axe Cop. Um, what was the other one from Image Comics? 
Okay, I had to stop and look at it, look it up. It was Grizzly Shark versus Sea Bear. That was also a weird one from 2016. Uh, but I thought there was another one too, just an odd, high concept, funny. You know, it's along the lines of like a Sharknado and things like that. So, Teen Boat. It uh, premiered at the Toronto Comics Art Festival in 2012. Teen Boat, just a fun, humorous book. I think there was only two volumes of that, but I'm sure there was stuff online. And uh, I know there are, on YouTube, there's some animation um, that the company, the book company put out just to promote the the silliness of Teen Boat. So, All right, there you go. Ten years ago, May of 2012. I will continue next time around with May of 1997, going back to comics history from 25 years ago. Hey, everyone. My name is Ryan Cody, and I'm a comic book artist, colorist, and occasional podcast host. On top of coloring comics for DC and Image and co-hosting the Illustrious Gentleman podcast, I also love to travel. As a comic book artist, most of my traveling comes in the form of going to different comic conventions throughout the year. Seattle, Anaheim, Charlotte, Sioux Falls, Phoenix, Austin, all of these cities have wonderful, unique spots to explore when I'm not sitting behind the table. I thought it would be fun to talk to other writers, artists, and creators about how they travel for work. What's their favorite city to visit? Favorite convention? What town is a hidden gem? What are their experiences like, and how do they balance that work-vacation dichotomy? So I'm calling this new podcast Super Fun Weekend, because if you try hard enough and are willing to leave the hotel, work trips can be super fun, and as my brother-in-law says, fun is fun. Season 1 will be starting soon, so subscribe, download, and listen to this show wherever podcasts are available or directly at anchor.fm slash superfunpod. You can also watch video versions of this show on YouTube, just search Super Fun Weekend or click on the link at anchor.fm, Super Fun Pod. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Super Fun Pod. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to hearing from you. New Comics Wednesday for the week of May 4th, starting with Marvel, Defenders Trade Paperback, There Are No Rules, collecting the miniseries, uh, the five-issue miniseries. For $15.99, this is by Al Ewing and Javier Rodriguez and company. When existence itself faces extraordinary threats, it needs an extraordinary defense. That's when you call the Defenders. Doctor Strange and the Masked Raider gather a non-team of Marvel's weirdest, wildest heroes for a mission that will uncover the hidden architecture of reality itself. This cosmos was not the first to exist, but if the Defenders can't track Marvel's oldest villain through the deepest trenches of time, it might be the last. The group must travel to the long-extinct previous cosmos, the birthplace of Galactus, but the Devourer is not the man they remember. Meet Taya, Omnimax, and more as Marvel history expands and Doctor Strange's makeshift defenders face extreme jeopardy. It is because of the artwork of Javier Rodriguez that I was such a fan of this series, and I am going to do a review of the five issues in the upcoming weeks. Uh, I had a real fun time reading this. The artwork is great, and it has um, a connection throughout Marvel history. So this whole Masked Raider thing, which started, I believe, in Marvel Comics 1000, at least the modern version, 
uh, can date all the way back to the very first Marvel comic. And uh, I, I think that's just so cool that they found a way to to do that. And they've done that with certain other characters. Um, there was a character within the Marvel's project that also connected back to the Golden Age. DC has done it a bunch of times. I love when they bring in characters that haven't been around for so long and then they make a, a, a modern story around them. So I will be doing a review of this, so I had to give this a recommendation. From Red 5 Comics, we have 78 MPH, number one, Mauro Mantella, Tomas Era, and German Peralta. This is $3.95. I like the premise to this. Earth is no longer what it used to be. An environmental catastrophe transformed the atmosphere into a large magnifying glass that enhances solar radiation. A nuclear disaster slowed down the speed of rotation of the planet, and anyone that moves slower than 78 miles per hour will not escape from the scorching sun. Only a small group of people was able to survive on this new world by constantly moving in huge rolling cities, never stopping. It reminds me of, um, oh, what is that that book that then was turned into a movie, I think by Peter Jackson, by cities that are on like these, I don't know, mechanical legs and they raise up into the sky and they just walk around the earth. Uh, but yeah, that's that's a, a, a cool premise, uh, a caravan, a convoy of trucks just constantly on the move. So I like that. Uh, from Little Brown Book for Young Readers, we have Anne of West Philly, a graphic novel. This is by Ivy Noel Weir and Maisha Haynes, and it is Anne of Green Gables with a twist for $12.99. This graphic novel moves Anne Shirley to modern-day West Philadelphia, where she finds new friends, new rivals, and a new family. When Marilla and Matthew Cuthbert decide to foster a teenage girl for the first time, their lives are changed forever. Their red-headed foster daughter, Anne, is in search of an exciting life and has decided that West Philly is where she's going to find it. Armed with a big personality and unstoppable creativity, Anne takes her new home by storm as she joins the robotics club, makes new friends in Diana and Gilbert, experiences first love, and turns the ordinary into the extraordinary. But as Anne starts to get comfortable, she discovers one thing she wasn't looking for, a family. From Boom Studios, we have Dune, The Waters of Canley, one of four, $4.99. Brian Herbert, Kevin G. Anderson, Francesco Mortarino, Christian Ward on covers. Go deeper into the Dune universe with this lore-expanding story set during the events of the Herbert Classic. In the aftermath of the Battle of Arakeen, legendary House Atreides war master Gurney Halleck takes refuge with spice smugglers, vowing revenge against the Harkonnens no matter the cost. From Dark Horse, we have Joyama Volume 1 Trade Paperback, $19.95 by Daniel Isles. In the lively city of Joyama, longtime friends Ringo, Arwen, and Silas work together as outrider soldiers a team of highly skilled individuals contracted by prestigious clients and government officials to shake down organized crime. Following a high-level assassination, a recently closed case has been reopened, but this was no ordinary takedown. The first volume of a genre-bending sci-fi trilogy 
and the debut graphic novel by Daniel Isles, also known by his pen name Dirty Robot. And this is for fans of manga, fantasy, cyberpunk, and sci-fi. $19.99. And then finally, we have one of my favorite events, DC 1 Million The Omnibus. I'm not a big omnibus collector. I don't collect them, but I know people do. $100, over 1,000 pages. It collects The Event by Morrison, Grant Morrison and Val Simix, Prentice Rollins and company. And it also collects many of the 1 million tie-ins, a bunch of secret file stories, stories from an 80-page giant, later tie-ins, and comics as well. This story is about the 853rd century, where Earth remains safe thanks to the heroics of the JLA of the future, but they have never met anything as deadly as Solaris, the tyrant sun. As this threat becomes too much to handle, these heroes of the future turn to the only group they know can help, the original JLA. I think the premise of why the 853rd century was chosen is because... I, what is the math? I'm going to get it wrong. Um, I think if you go from Action Comics number one as if it was uh, continuously published all the way up to Action Comics 1 million, that would be the 853rd century. I think that's what how Morrison figured it out. But yeah, we get the Justice Legion A, the future JLA, uh, just a mind-bending story, and all of the tie-ins uh, were versions of the characters that we knew, we know, or we were reading at the time, Green Lantern, Supergirl, Robin, Young Justice, um, uh, uh, Resurrection Man, I think was part of it, Shazam, Power of Shazam, etc., etc., but filtered all the way through to the 853rd century. And um, the event itself, the four-issue event, is really good. And most of the tie-ins are pretty good. But yeah, if you ever, I mean, if you're a person that likes Omnibuy collections and you've never read this, um, uh, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's, it's not, um, it's just, it's different. It's very different. It probably is a little outdated here and there with some of the concepts, the high concepts, but um, I thoroughly enjoyed the four issues, and it's a series that uh, I think I sold all of my issues before, but then I'm slowly collecting them again because I, I'm trying to have uh, a Grant Morrison library, and uh, here you go. Here's a way to read most. I think it's missing a few tie-ins here and there, maybe for uh, creator rights things. Um, but uh, all in all, a, a really good event that was taking place um, during the time when Morrison was writing JLA. So it was a lot of high energy and a lot of connectivity. So go check that out. All right. Those are your re recommendations for this week.
The Road to Danger Street, Part 11, taking a look at First Issue Special, Number 11, featuring Codename Assassin. We're safe. That assassin guy would have to walk on water to get to us now, someone says on the cover by Mike Grell, and sure enough, there is the assassin walking on water. Well, walking, uh, running through the air, more like it. Um... I actually like the the way on the cover the guy says that assassin guy like that that would be a fun code name instead of code name assassin he's assassin guy so uh yeah here we go another one-off story that turns out to be a surprisingly good read so the first page we we have a, a an introduction here that says possibly the wildest action hero you've ever seen the man known by the code name Assassin, a pulse-pounding tale of vengeance. This is by Jerry Conway and Steve Skeets as writers, the Redondo Studio as artists, and that would be Nestor Redondo, and Al Milgram on inks. Like most of the other first issue specials, we're thrown right into the action where the Assassin is... Um, hurtling through the air, running through the air, 30 stories up in a skyscraper in the middle of Manhattan, and he's going after the mob. And during this fight scene for the next couple pages, we learn things about the assassin. He fires tranquilizer darts. We get a hint that maybe he can read minds, which is then revealed later. Uh, He has telekinesis. And he wants revenge. He wants revenge against the mob uh, for killing his sister. He also has a very powerful mind blast that reacts almost on instinct. And it can burn out someone's mind. And as he says here, and that's almost as permanent as death. Design-wise, the character looks oddly like the 70s Star-Lord design from Marvel, including the pistol. Just the way the the costuming is laid out, and they both have a little design element on their forehead, and Star-Lord had previously uh, premiered uh, a month before this issue, so it's not like they could have gotten this issue together in one month and release it, you know, but just slight little things about their costuming that I'm like, oh, kind of looks the same. The Assassin can also read the unconscious mind, He has a utility belt. Uh, He pulls out this little pocket blowtorch. And he says that uh, all of this was designed by his associate named Ben before the mob killed him. And then uh, there's a footnote here that says all of this is going to be revealed in future issues. The assassin says, Ben's death is just another debt I have to settle with the underworld. Tonight's job should help to balance the ledger quite nicely. And I thought, oh, look at that. Referencing a ledger, uh, you know, years before Black Widow. So I don't know. Is that a spy thing? Is it a spy thing to say something about your ledger? I don't know. As the story continues, we are introduced to some supporting cast members such as Rich Roberts, who is a DA, a bureau agent named Peter Runyon, and Dr. Stone, who is uh, who has a connection to the assassin. And as they are talking, we get more information. The assassin's name is Jonathan Drew. And the doctor says, and believe me, 
He is a very ill man. So there's a whole bunch of mob characters. We're introduced to one of them named Mr. Grumman. Apparently, he is also known as the Mob Master. And uh, to help them fight the assassin, they bring in two characters named the Snake and Powerhouse. And uh, we learn that both of those have both of those characters have powers. Powerhouse is basically invulnerable to electricity, and he's very strong. He can't be moved. He's kind of like a juggernaut. And then the snake is, is exactly like you would think. Uh, he has practiced uh, strength and training for 15 years in South America, and he can slide about, and he's slithery like a, a snake, you know. A lot of their costuming, a lot of the artwork in this uh, section, it it felt like Steve Ditko and John Buscema or Dave Gibbons, like it just felt like this weird mashup of art styles, Carmine Infantino, that I had seen before. So later on, um, Johnny or, or the assassin and the doctor meet up and we get even more information. This is where we find out that his sister was killed. And I wrote here, you know, as each scene goes on, as we go through page by page, we get a little more information, not only about the assassin, but about supporting characters, the world they live in, the villains that they're going to go up against. And quite honestly, as far as the concept of very first issue special, where they're trying to introduce new ideas and try to hook readers, by even by like the fifth, sixth page, I was like, this issue has probably used that premise the best because you're just going along and you're reading it and getting a little more information and getting a little more information, but it's told in in fun ways, you know, with page turns and revelations and through conversations. Uh, there's a conversation here with the doc where he says, what happens when you're forced to kill? What happens when you become like them? That's when we get a flashback to what actually happened to his sister and how um, how the assassin, Jonathan Drew, actually got his powers through an experiment that the doctor was doing. And it's it's great. Like, I, I just, as I kept reading it, I was, like, more and more interested in this character because they kept feeding information slowly. But it meant something to the scene or it meant something to the larger story. So it turns out that his sister, Marie was killed because she was working for Grumman to try to raise money for Johnny's uh, college because their parents had died when they were very young. So that has to add to a lot of guilt. I wrote here that the way that the assassin runs on air reminds me of the trickster, the flash rogue who has his little booties that can he can also run through the air. And then just as the story, you know, gets going where the assassin is meeting up against the snake and powerhouse and they're going to have a fight, the issue ends and they say, if you want to read more, you know, please write in. So, yeah, the as far as that concept goes, I don't know if this issue is my favorite first issue special because I really liked Dingbats and the Manhunter one is pretty good. Just the the use of um, or or the the creative writing uh, aspect of it landed for me. It just really landed. 
it is Jerry Conway, right? And Jerry Conway is a really good writer. Um, even if some of the trope, even if it's very tropey here and there, and a lot of these elements, you're like, okay, yeah, I've heard that before, and I've heard that before. The way the the comic is written, and even some of the artwork. I get a feeling from some of the stories that I read or interviews that I read that Conway wasn't happy with the artwork and Nestor Redondo wasn't necessarily familiar with superhero comics. But I actually liked that because there are some panels in there that are straight out of, you know, maybe like a a sci-fi story or a horror story. Uh, It doesn't have... it, It feels very 70s, but it doesn't feel dated Um, Because, you know, as I talked about before, like when I read, I don't know, like the Steve Ditko drawn issue, I was like, "Mm, that feels kind of dated. Or some of the artwork, even like the Kirby stuff, you're like, yeah, that, you know, that feels kind of dated. But this was nice. It was nice to experience artwork that I'm not familiar with. And I thought it told the story very well. And then we're given some information in the text page, uh, which is called The Story Behind the Story. This was brought to uh, DC Comics by Jerry Conway when he arrived in the spring of that year, although they call it National still, right? Like they say, when he arrived at National instead of DC Comics. All of the costumes were designed by Carmine Infantino, which when I read that, I was like, yeah, I can believe that because it feels that way. Nestor Redondo is from the Philippines. Apparently, this is their debut on a superhero book. Um, I don't know, you know, Al Milgram, Nestor Redondo, Jerry Conway, Steve Skeets, it's a, the cover by Mike Grell. It's an assembly line of good creators. And then uh, we get some more information where... Conway is also writing Plastic Man and Cobra around this time. And upcoming uh, issues, uh, first issue special, will feature an all-new version of Starman, which, which is coming up next, a revival of the New Gods, which is the last issue, and then they say, and the first book-length novel of Green Arrow and Black Canary, which doesn't happen, although... That story is put up in, I think, backup issues or backup stories in World's Finest or Detective somewhere. So I will be taking a look at that since they were created under the umbrella of First Issue Special. Basically, the text page is saying, hey, after that, our schedules are open, so what do you want to see? But how do you ask readers, what do you want to see if this whole series is based on the idea that it's supposed to be new concepts? So that's kind of weird. From back issue about this issue, from um, uh, back issue number 71, I think it is, apparently Jerry Conway wanted to do another Punisher-esque character. He felt like he didn't really pull it off. Uh, Marvel's Punisher appeared in 1973. We're reading this in 1975. And back issue asks, why was he called Assassin when he doesn't kill anyone? And Jerry Conway laughs and says, I don't know. I was trying to come up with a compelling name that might give you the feeling of the character being part of a larger world. And again, I was trying to riff on the Punisher. Uh, The character running through the air was modeled after Wayne Boring's version of Superman in the 1950s, where that character was flying but looked like he was running as well. 
And apparently the character did have some later appearances post-crisis. He was mentioned in James Robinson's Starman and then would show up for a few issues in the Robinson Superman stories. Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, uh, Superman 695, Superman War the Supermen 1 through 4. He was connected to Atlas. He had a similar look. And now I'm starting to think you know, a lot of these first issue special characters made the briefest of appearances during the Robins and Superman run. So it's like, huh, it's almost like a precursor to this whole Danger Street concept. So yeah, I did. I really like this a lot. Um, it's going to go up there as one of my favorites so far. And he has a lot of connections to the other characters. Uh, he is a character that has mental issues, right? Just like the Creeper, even... Dr. Fate to a degree, this notion of um, duality or this notion of being something other. I could see him working with Lady Cop, and um, I wrote here that it's interesting that there are two types of characters in First Issue Special in this series. You either have quote-unquote normal characters or you have superheroes. So it started off with a superhero or a super being, Atlas. Then it went to the green team, which, you know, they're kind of just a normal bunch of kids. Then back to superheroes with Metamorpho. Then Lady Cop. Then back to superheroes with Manhunter. Then the Dingbats. Then the Creeper. Then Warlord. Then Dr. Fate. Then the Outsiders, which kind of are both, right? And now we're back again to superheroes with Assassin. It's this weird flip-flop thing that's going on. And both the Outsiders and the Assassin feel like they could um, uh, be in both worlds, both in the superheroes and in the normal-based uh, normal characters. But I kind of like that. I was like, oh, look at that. I just noticed there is a back-and-forth thing going on here. And, uh, you know, will that play out in Danger Street? The, the weird, high-fantasy, sword-and-sorcery, dimension-hopping characters... Um, versus the very street-level characters uh, or or the characters that need to be based in some kind of reality. So I guess we will see. All right, there you go. That is First Issue Special number 11, only two more printed issues to go, and then we'll take a look at some of the other stories after that. Oh, yeah. Feedback. Feedback Friday. It's a new month. It's May 6th. So let's take a look at some of the feedback I got throughout April, starting with an email from Matt Williams, mid-April. And Matt talked about a bunch of subjects here. Uh, the latest CGS episode that I did with Brian and a few digest points as well. So uh, I chose a few of them here. And Matt, I will respond in an email to the rest. So let's start with uh, number one, Matt writes, The Wrath. I love hearing you and Brian chatting again on any topic, but I especially enjoyed your coverage of The Wrath story. As a Bat fan, I had heard about that story, but I don't recall it being available to me until it was reprinted in some collection. I need to read it again, as I did not remember much of the plot mentioned in your conversation particularly the capes disappearing for the fight. 
my younger self would have spent days coming up with a reason for why that happened. Kid Batmat rationalized that Batman must have must have some cows with curved ears and some cows with straight ears. It didn't occur to little me that the real explanation was that Don Newton Don Newton drew Batman with curved ears, while Jim Aparo and Irv Novick drew straight ears. That's a great... <laughs> I love that. I love what our little child minds came up with to rationalize certain things. And I know that um, this has come up for me with a few things. There was an issue, the first issue of New Teen Titans that I read, New Teen Titans number 28, and Corey and Donna are talking to each other and there's a panel of Donna going into the shower and but before it Corey was there and I thought Corey like took off her wig you know that big hair that Starfire has I thought she took off the wig and she was the one that got into the shower like my brain just I I guess you know as a kid your brain is trying to figure out what it is to be a comic book reader by going panel to panel and putting, you know, these are all static images and your brain is trying to make them make sense. Um, I know for the longest time, and I know there are other people, that when we shortened Justice League of America, instead of calling it JLA, I swear my brain would always say GLA for some strange reason. And honestly, I think I could probably come up with a, a bunch of other examples of that same thing Matt's talking about. All right, another point here about Matrix Resurrections. I was glad to hear that you enjoyed the movie I did too. It was nice not to be assaulted by tons of CGI and instead focus on a simpler story. Your rewatch of the originals reminded me of the first time Karen and I saw Reloaded. Just as the architect is explaining his machinations to Neo near the end of the film, our auditorium lost sound. We're sitting there watching these two characters talk, and we see the screens filled with images of Neo screaming at some camera, and we have zero clue what information is being relayed. I had to look up an article about what they said later. I'm not sure I've ever watched that scene with sound. You inspired me to do my own rewatch, so I'll get there at some point. Wow, I can't imagine seeing that scene the sound cutting out, and then you're like, well, I mean, as I talked about, it's it's a fairly complicated scene anyway. Uh, it's a, a bunch of jumbled words, and, and to not, you probably were actually better off without the dialogue, Matt. Uh, number five, he talks about Clone Wars. I think Clone Wars actually gets better as it goes along. Somewhere around season, th season three, it feels like they stopped making the show for a predominantly child audience and started making it for an all-ages audience. Some of the stories become really dark, and the final episodes of the series were basically a really good Star Wars movie set during the events of Revenge of the Sith. The follow-up series, Bad Batch, is also very good. So I'm still in season one. I'm, I think I'm halfway through right now. I'm slowly making my way through it. And yeah, there are certainly some... Uh, some, some episodes that are, uh, silly, generic, they're, they're, there's a continuing story going on, but I do like that this cartoon is 
hammering home the idea of a serial, like a true serial, the things that George Lucas was inspired by, where it's chapter by chapter, even if it does tell a larger story, even if some of the episodes take place one right after the other, story-wise, um, it's still a serial, you know, with the whole narration at the front, um, the, the, the way it's told. And I kind of like that. I, I, I like that. I'll, I'll come back to that point in a second. Um, so yeah, so I'm still plotting along, but, um, I'm trying to watch at least one episode a day. And then Matt talks about Picard. I know you haven't watched any of season two yet, but I look forward to hearing your thoughts when you do. We have become bogged down but what, by what I feel is filler material. Uh, I think this season may work better when binged rather than being viewed on a weekly basis. Okay. Uh, at the time of this, uh, that I got this email and time of this recording, I am halfway through Picard. So I've watched five episodes. And I'm not certain that the binge watch <laughs> is helping that either because... Um, I think there's a lot of convenience going on, especially when they travel back in time, uh, you know, that certain characters wind up certain places within certain story ideas that take, you know, that, that are centered around the year 2024 or heck, 2022. Um, just the fact that they pulled in actors that, their characters aren't in 2024, but they're using um, the same actors that we know from the future. And it's kind of like, ooh, you know, I, I get it. I get why you're doing it, but it just feels like, all right, we have this cast of characters and, we ha and we're paying them and we have to use them. And, oh, won't, won't it be cool to use the same actors, but they're not the same characters? And it, I don't know, it doesn't work for me. And what I was saying about the whole serial nature of Clone Wars, this season, even though I'm only halfway through, but also the first season, speaks to um, the nature of Star Trek and that sometimes the episodic nature of that series, of the way it was originally intended, is better than trying to come up with a longer narrative broken up into 10 parts. Um, even Deep Space Nine, which I am currently re-watching season four, I think, yeah, uh, so I can do some, uh, do an episode on that. Deep Space Nine, larger story, but still episode, episodic in nature, even if there are some two-parters going on or whatever. And that's not what current Star Trek is. Now, I've only seen, you know, the first season of Discovery, and the first season of Picard. Um, but this larger narrative... So it's what's frustrating about it is... Okay, so I've seen five episodes of Picard, right? While I can certainly say, you know, maybe this, season, this episode was better than this episode. Or this one, I was more engaged than the other one. What I can't do within those five episodes, and I probably am not going to be able to do it within ten or within the first season. It's not like I can go... Oh, do you remember Star Trek, The Next Generation, Best of Both Worlds? Do you remember Q Who? Do you remember Yesterday's Enterprise? Do you remember um, Chain of Command? Do you remember Unification, right? You can't, 
you can't go in and just say the title of a episode and suddenly everybody can talk about it for, you know, 20 minutes because we all loved those episodes. That's what you can't do with a narrative like this. And think of something, and I'm only really saying it because Star Trek wasn't originally developed like that, right? It, it was meant to be episodic, even though later story, you know, I get it, storytelling, television, it all evolves. You want to compete with what else is going out, going on out there. Um, but is there a way to keep the episodic nature and still have a larger narrative, but then you can still go and say, hey, that episode uh, is going to become an evergreen episode, you know, and apparently that's what we're probably going to get with uh, Strange New World. So that's my feeling on Picard so far, and I'll watch the rest of the episodes to let you know more. And then another final point here from Matt. Comics reading anniversary. Congratulations on approaching the 40-year mark as a comics reader. That's right. Uh, my This is me now talking. My 40-year anniversary is coming up in October of 2022. Matt continues, I wouldn't buy my own comics until I started receiving an allowance around age 10, but my very first comic dates back to when I was three years old. That means I've been accumulating comics for 43 years now. I didn't learn how to read until I was five, but I suppose looking at the pictures might count. Yeah, I think a lot of us in our generation are probably celebrating 40, 45, maybe even 50 um, years of comics reading. And um, I picked October 1982, as I've talked about before, because that's when I picked out uh, certain comics myself. Like they weren't handed to me. Um, I was at the store, the mom and pop store, uh, with the spinner rack, um, you know, maybe somebody was with me, but I was the one that picked it out. Now I've had, I had several years before that October of 1982. That means I would have been, um, almost turning 10 years old. Um, uh, I've certainly read comics prior to that. The ones my uncle gave me, Richie Rich comics, things that my sister bought, my mother, my mother gave me. So I don't know exactly how young I was when I started reading comics. I would have to look at um, probably the Richie Rich that I own and see when, how far back they go. And there's probably comics that I had that I just destroyed. But in terms of my own particular, you know, superhero comic book reading, I'm going with October of 1982. So yeah, it might be a few years more than that, but I like that, that um, symmetry there. So congratulations on your own comics reading anniversary. I like looking backwards. I like look like looking and seeing what comics came out in what particular week, in what particular month. And in a way, I chart my own autobi my biographical journey or autobiographical journey of comics. And it also explains, you know, what I call like my comic book DNA. These are the things that made me a comics book, a comics reader. So that's awesome. Thanks, Matt. Thanks always for your, uh, for your correspondence. And then one final one here, Chris Beckett, um, talking about the April 10th digest. This is, uh, from Twitter. And Chris says three for seven on the image comics trivia and the pod and any podcast that references star blazers always gets an A plus from me. And, you know, Honestly, as I 
talked about some of my upbringing and my comic book DNA. I guess anyone born in the early 70s or somewhere in the 70s uh, probably has Star Blazers on their cartoon bingo card. You know, I mean, that's just such a... And I always dip back into Star Blazers, um, you know, on YouTube, the cartoons, the live action, the, the series versus the movies, the updated versions. There was... Dark Horse was print was supposed to be printing some Star Star Blazers manga, but I don't know whatever happened to that. So, uh, so thank you, Chris, and thank you to anyone if you've emailed, uh, commented on the website, retweeted, uh, tweeted at me, liked anything on Twitter or Instagram. Really, just thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for all the support. Let's continuing. Let's continue that. Um, and I will now start to compile feedback uh, that I received in May for next time. You can send email peter at thedailyrios.com or leave a comment on the website, thedailyrios.com. Check out the Daily Rios Instagram. Come to Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Uh, you can, you know, communicate with me on there. Um, I'm still thinking about that Google number if anybody wants to send a text or a voicemail. Um, if you have a favorite podcast catcher and I'm not there, please let me know. If I am there, give me a review. And by all means, continue to send me promos if you have them. Kickstarter promos or uh, podcast promos or comic book promos. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 559, the 44th Digest, which means we only got eight more to go to hit uh, my 10th anniversary. Uh, for Sunday, May 7th, 2022, talk to you soon. There's this boy at school. Not everyone thinks he's cool. He can turn into a small yacht. Well, I think that team boat is hot.